0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episodes include a discussion of the end of HBO's Watchmen and the new Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. show difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us! Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky. And Keith Phelps. Tasha Robinson is out busting a few kneecaps but we suspect her days of freelance gangsterism may be short-lived. For our next two episodes, we're talking about two films about gamblers who are in way over their heads with the criminal element. These movies really hit home for me right now, let me tell you. What's wrong, Scott? I'm in big trouble. Remember our producer's episode when I said I was going to write the worst feature ever written in order to collect a kill fee? That didn't work out too well. So I decided to bet everything I had on the New York Knicks making the playoffs this year. Oh, God, Scott, why? They're one of the worst teams in basketball.
1: They haven't made the playoffs in seven years.
0: Well, you know, I figured they're in the Eastern Conference. Pretty much everybody in the Eastern Conference makes the playoffs, right? Orlando made the playoffs last year.
2: But they've got four power forwards and no point guards. The best you can say about the Knicks is that their lottery pick is fitting in well with the team. Because he sucks. This is definitely knowledge that I have. (laughs)
0: Hey, I thought they were due, and I got great odds. Now, unless Marcus Morris shoots them out of the gutter, I could lose everything. My house, my checking account, the kids' college fund, my Mike cousin Vinny Blu-ray. I'm really hoping Vinny the Shark will be reasonable about this.
1: Vinny the Shark is not a promising name, Scott.
0: Yeah, you know, truth be told, he has been a little moody lately, but I have a plan to win it all back. If this week's Next Picture Show episodes top WTF with Mark Marin in the iTunes ratings, then I get to keep my face. So we really have to lead with a box office sensation. Genevieve, what's the first movie on this week's pairing?
2: Uh, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie.
0: Was that a big hit?
2: It was pulled from distribution after a week.
0: Is it at least connected with this bit we're doing?
2: Oh, indeed it is. Bad bets with bad people are a running theme of our next two episodes about gamblers at the end of their rope. In John Cassavetti's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Ben Gazzara stars as a Sunset Strip nightclub owner who settles a seven-year debt to the mob and immediately goes deep in the hole again. With his burlesque house at risk, he's pressured into settling his new debt by pulling off a hit that's far more treacherous than he realizes. The life-or-death urgency of Gazzara's situation is mirrored by Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, the new film by Josh and Benny Safdie. With his own fate in the hands of shady criminals, Sandler's jewelry store owner scrambles to dig himself out of a hole, much like the brilliant opal that's been dug up from a mine in Africa. He's hoping the opal, along with a couple big bets, will spare him a grim fate.
0: This week, we'll look at the killing of a Chinese bookie, John Cassavetti's cult favorite about a self-styled ladies' man and nightclub artiste who sent on a doom-filled odyssey. Then next week, we're bringing in Uncut Gems, a bleeding ulcer of a thriller about a jeweler gambling for his life. Please be sure to tell your friends to tune in because I'd like to keep my face. It ain't pretty, but it's the only one I've got. I'm a club owner. I took a place from nothing and I built it into something. I've been loan shark to death.
1: And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Crazy Horse West
2: is proud and pleased to present to you a new guest entertainer, Mr. Tony Amasio. Take it away, Tony.
0: I killed a few people. Oh. With an M1. Who
2: oh, you learned it. You learn it. You learn to be happy, you learn to play the fool, you learn to be what everybody wants you to be. Ah, uh,
0: never mind. I got radar. I got instincts about those things. It's a setup.
1: I get the message. Love, sweet love. Love, sweet love. 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 love, see,
0: love. love, see. love see in the last act of john Cassavetti's the killing of a chinese bookie cosmo vitelli has his back against the wall immediately after erasing a seven-year debt to the mob cosmo goes twenty-three thousand dollars in the hole during an all-night poker game and there's no climbing out this time though cosmo has signed over his sunset strip burlesque club crazy horse west to his debtors they've lost their patience with him and are forcing him to accept a grim proposition If he kills a bookie named Harold Ling, his loan will be forgiven. He doesn't want to do it, but they hand him a gun, give him a car, and send him on what they secretly expect to be a suicide mission. But en route to do the job, Cosmo's car blows a tire in the freeway. In a panic, he dashes across heavy traffic and makes his way to a payphone, presumably to alert his handlers that there's been a hitch in the plan. But the call he ends up placing is to the Crazy Horse West. He choreographs every routine at his club, and he wants to know what's happening in his absence. How many girls are on stage? Only two? And are they really playing that song? Even in Mortal Peril, Cosmo's first concern is his art. And with that, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is really a movie about John Cassavetes himself, the iconoclast, the outsider, the misunderstood artist. And Crazy Horse West, in this analogy, represents his struggle to meet with moviegoers' expectations and desires. The routines we see at the club are strange enticements to some foreign, exotic place, with the eccentric Mr. Sophistication as a storyteller and joke maker and tour guide, surrounded by beautiful women who act and dance and dutifully remove their tops. The club isn't particularly well-traveled, which is why it doesn't count for much as collateral. But Cosmo takes his art seriously. It bothers him that the few patrons who do come to the club are mostly there to hoot and holler at naked ladies. To his mind, Crazy Horse West isn't a strip club. It's easy to see the film itself playing the same way. Cassavetti's cast several beautiful women, including playboy playmate Azizi Johari as Cosmo's favorite dancer and girlfriend. And there's plenty of nudity in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, if that's what people expect to see. But the film is a burlesque in an ocean of strip joints, an independent film that seems to go out of its way to frustrate audiences who are used to commercial cinema. This is Cassavetti's version of a gangster film, except with the metabolism slowed way down, especially in the 135-minute cut. We know that Cosmo has to make good on his debt or else, but Cassavetes is determined to stall and to ruminate as much as possible. Even when he gets to the moment where Cosmo infiltrates the home of a man who's a much bigger and more dangerous target than he'd been led to believe, the chaos that follows is far from your typical Hollywood shootout. The killing of a Chinese bookie is about defying what even the Cassavetes faithful might have expected from him. His previous film was 1974's A Woman Under the Influence, which had earned Cassavetes an Oscar nomination for Best Director and Jenna Rollins a nomination for Best Actress. A Woman Under the Influence is a kitchen sink melodrama about the conflict between a husband and wife over the wife's mental illness, and it's characterized by a lot of screaming and crying and big displays of emotion. This film goes in the opposite direction, tying itself to Ben Gazzara's low-key performance as Cosmo, a man who's swallowed up by certain grim inevitabilities that chase him from the opening scene. One film is about life, the other is about death, and Cassavetes is challenging us to swing on the pendulum with him. We'll talk more about his big gamble after the break.
2: Vince, I can't understand, Sonny. Uh, well, well, who's on stage now? The, 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 uh, the, the short girl? Uh, Margot Donna, right. And the tall girl? Right, Sherry. Yeah. And uh, what, what number is it?
0: Is it the Paris number? The Paris number, for Christ's sake. You've been at the place seven years. You don't know what the Paris number is? Well, are there signs on the wall? P-A-R... The Paris number. There's another card that says moon. Well, what's he singing? Is it, I can't give you anything but love, baby? I can't give you
2: anything but love baby
0: okay so a standard question have you seen the film before and and what do you think about it this time
1: i had seen it before and when i was first watching Casavetti's films this was the one that really kind of unlocked things for me this and uh one under the influence like i'd seen images and I'd seen shadows and i'd seen gloria before that mm-hmm. um and was keeping me at arm's length for some reason but this one not only did i like this film a lot but i kind of made me understand what what he was up to as a whole, and and and, and became a lot easier for me to get into at that point. But uh, yeah, I like I like this film a lot. I like it again. You know, watching it again, I hadn't seen it in a few years. We'll get into it. But I mean. These guys' faces, man. I mean, I know. I mean, Cassell and Gazara and and uh, T- Timothy Carey are all actors we've seen in other movies, but I mean, they they belong in this world. I mean, I, it's just it's just remarkable um, how rich this thing is with atmosphere and, and dripping with character, and and all the right people are playing all
0: the right characters in this movie. Genevieve, what would you think?
2: I mean, I'm kind of at the exact opposite end of the uh, spectrum from Keith. Like, I don't have very much Cassavetti's experience at all. I kind of understand where he fits into the cinema landscape but have seen a woman under the influence is the only film of his i've seen and keith when you said you kind of had the experience previously of feeling like his films were keeping you at arm's length that's kind of what i felt throughout this film Mm -hmm. like i just had a real hard time kind of clicking with it after i was done with it i kind of understood it more and appreciated it more on an intellectual level but as a viewing experience it felt like a very distracted film which is i think Part of the point. It's always returning to those scenes of the crazy horse and kind of taking you away from the machinations of the plot and going back to this other part of the story that is ostensibly less important to the movie but more important to Cosmo. And that's when you realize that the movie is not about the hit, it's about Cosmo and it's a character study. And I didn't really have that context going into it and because we're doing this pairing and having seen uncut gems first i think i was just (laughs) primed for something very different and you know every time we went back to the crazy horse it was i was like what's happening here? You, you know, like, like, well, like, why why are we doing this again? Why is uh, why am I watching this 135 minute version of this film instead of the shorter version that, you know, sticks to the, the story of the film. But as I said, once I finished it, and you know, he kind of gives that big monologue at the end to everyone in the dressing room, and it kind of puts a little bow, I guess, on this character study that we've been going through for the last two hours. Like I said, it kind of clicked. I kind of got it. But the actual experience of watching the film, I found just very hard to connect with it because of that.
1: Yeah, we should talk about the two versions of the film. I, I believe I saw the 135-minute version last time, but I, I think my D V DVDs are in the basement or something. And, and uh, I rented the shorter version on iTunes. This time? Uh, this time, okay. yeah. So, um Ooh.
2: But I uh, went to the library to yeah. rent the the version, the 135 minute version. Yeah, and I was like,
0: knowledge. I was telling, Jeremy <laughs> was like, Nah, 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 you can't do it. You got to yeah. see the, the longer. <laughs> well, but, I,
2: it but, was, but, but, Keith, but Keith has seen it before, so so he's allowed. <laughs> yeah, I, I
1: can cut me some, a little slack here, but but I would not recommend it for another reason too. I'm not even comparing. I don't have the two cuts in my mind fresh enough to compare them, but I was watching it on. I rent it through iTunes, and I had the subtitles on while I was watching it, as I sometimes do. And song lyrics would come on at various points when no music was playing, um, <laughs> like the big audition scene where the dancer comes into mm-hmm. audition for. Their song lyrics are, are up on the subtitles, and it was completely silent <laughs> because That's I didn't. Very they, odd. they probably I don't know if they had the music rights for streaming oh, no. or something. So it was. Really, it felt like more of wait, a, a more. A, a, it felt wait, like even more she was of, dancing uh, without music. Yeah, it felt like even oh more like god. sort of a, a frustrating genre expectations exercise. than no. the Casablancas even meant. To oh my god! No, no. I'm just glad I'd seen it before. Holy I smokes! Like, I already had the sort All of. All right, we got to. We have, this is a
0: warning to our listeners. Do not <laughs> watch the. <laughs> Try to find the criteria. Do not watch the shorter version because, like that is, there's definitely music in that scene. I can't speak to something.
1: Yeah, I can't speak to what's on Prime, but but uh, this was this was through
2: iTunes. Yeah. That's interesting. I think in, in that scene, the audition scene, there definitely is music. But hearing you talk about that, I'm, I'm struck by something I noticed in the earlier part of the film when we're being introduced to the Crazy Horse and the productions that are staged there. And I was really struck by the lack of music because I, I mean, at that point, I think I was still processing the Crazy Horse as a strip club and there's these dancers on stage, but there's no music. There's Mr. Sophistication's kind of, <laughs> you know whatever he's doing but it's like the quietest club ever and then in the scene when he's gambling that you know when he takes his three girlfriends with him and loses 27 grand i was also struck there by like how quiet this Mm -hmm. club is like there's no ambient music and i think that's just such an expectation i have of any scene set in a nightclub is that there's going to be music, there's going to be a lot of ambient noise and just the quietness. It's not even that it's quiet, but there's just sort of like a, an emptiness, you know, to the air in those scenes that is just odd and unsettling. And I think kind of, again, made it a little harder for me to get on the wavelength of what was happening in this film, particularly with those scenes in The Crazy Horse.
0: He does care quite a bit about music, though. There are several scenes of him backstage or below stage working some device that has all the songs on it. And so he does care. Yeah, it's
2: like four songs. There's like four buttons and he picks one. And and I mean, the the
0: interesting thing, too, is that it reminded me so much of the Adam O'Goyen film Exotica, in which the main theme of that song. Played in the strip club is Everybody Knows by (laughs) Leonard Cohen, which is really not the most erotic song ever composed. So it definitely throws you off here, though I think that's part of what Cosmo is trying to do. I mean, he really is trying to keep this from being understood as a strip club and instead having it being understood as much more of a sensual journey really of somebody who's going to talk about Paris or talk about some other locale and then you know bring these uh, not, yeah just t- t- give me a look
1: yeah it's a sort of the no no you're totally right it's to me that's kind of the enigma at the heart of the movie is like are we supposed to think this is accomplished artistry because we know Cosmo does it takes it very seriously yeah, yeah. and and if it is as Scott suggested and I think Ben gazzari himself suggested a, a comment on Cassavetti's own experience it could be seen as a deeply unflattering self-portrait of someone who's obsessed with art that's not actually worth the trouble or mm. are we supposed to take it at face value as a wonderful sensual parisian experience because it is <laughs> to me it's not i mean it, it is uh, no. peculiar and you're right it is Cassavetti's asking as it sets up expectations it has no intention of satisfying
0: yeah um so you think you think it's almost deliberately self-deprecatingly not good that's one way
1: to read it if, if, it, if you do it see it way. as a self-portrait but i mean i think more the more basic question is is there any chance we're supposed to take his artistic aspirations as being realized in a way that works via these burlesque routines?
0: I mean, I think we're supposed to respect the impulse. Okay. I mean, I, I would say. This is, I think, pretty you know, transparently a film about Cassavetes and about art mm-hmm. and about commercial art versus whatever it is that cassavetes does and whatever it is this burlesque club is doing not i don't know what the rest of sunset Strip looks like at this point but i'm I'm gonna guess that crazy horse probably stands out as being quite a different experience Mm -hmm. uh, than other places so that's enough i never thought about it as being like self-deprecating exactly but maybe it is i don't know i mean Mm -hmm. reading makes sense to me i guess
2: I mean, I think it's also about expectations as much as it is about the art itself, because I don't know if there's a single performance scene that goes by without someone shouting, you know, take it off. That's a repeated chorus throughout Mm -hmm. this is like every time audiences are presented with what Cosmo is giving them, they want something different. And I think it's maybe possible to read what Cosmo is doing outside of the question of its quality and more within the context of what audiences are expecting of him and what they're getting.
0: Yeah, and I think there's maybe a, I mean, I'm not entirely, I'm curious about what you think about this in terms of it being an erotic or anti-erotic film, too. I mean, like, is this a case where Cassavetes is like, okay, you want naked women? Here you go. And then presents it in a way that is, I wouldn't say, certainly not unflattering, but like, sort of like... Um,
1: it's not a sensual film. Right.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's and kind, it's, it's, it's,
1: it, I think it's kind of similar to what he's doing with the gangster elements too. Where it's just like yeah. this is technically it's everything you want from a gangster film. Yeah, it has yeah. all the ingredients. Yeah. It, it, and it just as the uh, Crazy Horse is technically everything you you know want from a topless show in some ways. Yeah. It, it, in the, in the I, literal I, sense, toplessness. Yes, yes, you yeah. know. Uh <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I think it's kind of the same thing.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting the way he actually films both the you know the nudity and the violence in that. Sometimes you see it, but also sometimes you don't. Sometimes the camera is looking elsewhere. Sometimes it's focused on, you know, the area below the breasts. Or sometimes it's just focused on the face. Or sometimes it's like off three feet to the left of where the breasts are, you know? Like, it's not, it almost seems haphazard the way that it is uh, applied within the film. I, I know it's almost certainly not. But the way you experience it, it's when you are expecting to see a naked breast, you don't. But then all of a sudden, a few minutes later, you do, and it's thrown you off guard again. So I think, it again, it's sort of done in the context of defying expectations in order to make you question those expectations. And as I said, with the violence as well, like there's very little blood mm-hmm. in this film, and there's not no blood, you know, there are some moments of startling violence, but they happen in such a way that it doesn't feel like we are... Meant to like revel in it the way that violence can sometimes be enjoyed on film by some people who are not me, but <laughs> yeah,
0: I well, I, looks I like, like Scott. It. I like it. No, what do you think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, no that's interesting. Point. And, and
1: when there is blood, also, it's worth noting it's, it's that 70s blood that I love so much mm-hmm. that it's like, it looks like wait, it's got some red paint or something. I'm not sure what's yeah. going on here.
0: Yeah, <laughs> who threw
2: paint at his suit jacket? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, well, it just that one note, I mean, you all were sort of referring to it, I think, vaguely, but like the way he shoots that audition scene is very striking, obviously, because mm-hmm. he is mm-hmm. shooting most of that, you know, at the waistline and below, mm-hmm. and you're kind of watching, I guess his perspective watching her movements, watching her legs. I mean, I guess, the, again, that's, you know, that would that is what you would think a choreographer, an artist would do, right? Uh, and that, you know, point, not self-deprecation in that instance. But I think there's a, there's at least a degree to which we are to respect cosmo for that impulse definitely mm-hmm. and i think his status is kind of a as a pleasure seeker as a ladies man you know as it's but still sort of as a gentleman as well you know as an inspiration occasionally i mean I, all of that reads very much like cassavetes on cassavetes right mm-hmm. but yeah i kind of want to get into it we were talking a little bit more about we were talking about it as a gangster film and how much it kind of defies what you expect but not wh- while giving you what you're supposed to have the requisite elements and uh there, there's so many examples of this but i really do love the actual the killing of a chinese boogie that whole sequence is so mesmerizing to to watch because it's just not handled like a suspense sequence like that is normally handled it's uh it's not a lot of sound or music it's just, it's all very quiet and matter of fact and almost kind of mournful i mean you get that that moment when he actually does it and what is the his victim says like sorry right yeah. or, or like a bad yeah. he said he, it's, I've it's been like bad. i'm a bad man or something I'm yeah. a bad man yeah it's yeah. like
1: it's like you know he realized he kind of had it coming i guess but yeah yeah
0: It just—it just like what what, is an incredible odyssey to get there. I mean, I mentioned in the introduction about the blown tire and the phone call back to the club just to see how everything's going there yeah, which is i love that scene amazing that,
2: that's that's like the character moment i think of, of the scene like that's when if you're if you're not understanding what cosmo is about up until that point that is the moment where i think you understand it and,
0: and, and the, he, there's also such a great sense of humor at, at occasion like the afterwards when he goes to the restaurant he demands the, the hamburgers but without <laughs> rappers <laughs> he just wants 12 hamburgers no rappers because what his wife is environmentally mm-hmm. conscious and doesn't want all that wasteful paper. So it's just a, he just wants a bag of 12, <laughs> 12 <laughs> hamburgers. It's just like, you think about like when this murder you know scene is in- investigated and somehow you know these if this comes back to the restaurant that's going to seem conspicuous to me <laughs> the request of having it reminds me of a bloom county bit remember that whole thing about milkshake hold the cup Do you remember like yes. have it your way yeah, yeah it's kind of like that um well
2: the other thing about that though is like this isn't cosmos plan this is the plan that he has been given to to carry out you know he is he is told to go get those hamburgers and he is told to you know get this car and you have two hours and the car part goes bad and he has to improvise a little bit but for the most part you know he is going through the motions of this like he has no personal stake in this crime the way he has a personal stake in what's going on at the crazy horse he i guess his personal stake is that you know he (laughs) needs to save his club you, you know theoretically by doing this although we know that you know, it's a suicide mission, or it's intended as a suicide mission, which raises the question of why Cosmo is able to successfully kill this apparently very difficult to kill man. And the the film, I don't think ever really addresses that, which going back to the question of is this a gangster film? Like, you know, we don't really have a whole lot of context for what Cosmo's experience with violence is like has he killed someone before he kind of acts like he has like he doesn't seem particularly upset by the act well he talks you know, about the war doesn't...
1: or at least in the in the shorter cut he talks about the war
2: oh i might i might have missed that or it uh, might not be but... in the
1: longer cut
0: mm, yeah Scott's, i don't remember Scott's but looking but, blank but, as it's well. a, but it seems weird that there'd be anything yeah. in the shorter that's not in the longer well
2: actually actually i, I read that cassavetes did add stuff to the yeah. to the second cut so it's mm. entirely possible it was added maybe for for that very reason because it is kind of a question that that i had like why is he the guy that is able to do to do this thing and, yeah, to, yeah. and to get away I, you know like yes he's given this step-by-step plan but it was given to him by people who expected him to be killed
0: i mean i accepted it as uh, i as just ironic yeah me too I, know, I was, it, was it, like just kind yeah. of it was just this kind of dumb luck and and everyone's just astonished that he actually pulls it off the one know? time
1: he actually got lucky you know it, yeah which, <laughs> which which will
0: figure into our next <laughs> film too when we talk about un- uncut gems and and uh you know when, when you know loser's get lucky but not. So, yeah, I wanted to kind of circle back though to something you well actually to to the idea of this is a Casavetti's film and I was thinking about it as a very weird it'd be a weird gateway into his work <laughs> mm-hmm. right you wouldn't necessarily want to if you're saying I was you're, gloria in retrospect right, which i think right, is the first uh, one i saw Yeah, like like gloria or women on the influence i mean these would you want to start people with films like that this is kind of because because of the meta-fictional element of this you'd, you'd, you mm-hmm. maybe would come later but but you said earlier um that this sort of un- unlocked his work for you so you h- how was that i
1: think just a way you know because i know the genre conventions, I could saw the way he was playing against them I kind of like thought about how those applied to, you know, his other dramas and well, like, you know, the ways he was swimming against the stream against on those as well. So I don't know. I, to me, it really works and, and still works.
0: Yeah. It kind of, and also sort of brings me to this question too, which is like, this is came out in 1976, the year of, you know, taxi driver, the year of a lot of, I mean, this is right in the middle of this Renaissance in american studio filmmaking where the where the inmates are running the asylum and yet it really stands in contrast to all that stuff is really making a statement against hollywood or apart from hollywood i mean is it weird in a way to see this kind of a movie you know or this kind of a statement come out at a time that we associate as the most revolutionary era in studio filmmaking in what sense do you well i mean in the sense that in the sense that it is it is if we're going to accept it as a metaphor about Cassavetti's way versus the hollywood way then i think we have to see it as you know strikingly different from what everybody else was doing yeah
1: i mean i i, I mean i know Cassavetti's scholar uh, the way some people are but i i mean to me it seems like you know hollywood was, was for acting and making money and when you directed films was something else apart from that and you know, I I don't know how this film was financed, but it certainly doesn't seem like something that went through the studio development system. It felt, yeah. it felt like, despite the genre elements, it feels like it's as pure revision as any of his other, other films. That's why I kind of said it's kind of odd to start with Gloria, because I think that is its most conventional film in many ways. But uh, other ones I've seen, there's a few I haven't. But on the other hand, it also feels like the one that's most tied to Hollywood, because it is so, there is so much commentary on genre conventions in, in this film. It's like, it, it is, like I, don't know, like I said before, it's got it's got what you need to yeah. call it a gangster film, but it's never in the way you expect it. There are always these misshapen parts of a gangster film that I think make it a really uh, interesting combination as well. I mean, one other thing, I mean, this is not changed the subject, but I was thinking about what a great L.A. film this is, mm-hmm. in a sense that it, it is showing you parts of the city you just don't see on film at, at, at any point. And, and people walking for for i mean obviously you know he gets around by car but there's also some you know people walking from place to place and and what a misery that can can be uh as as well
0: (laughs) yeah
2: i also like the bars we see like the Mm -hmm. the bar he goes to in the second scene after he pays off his debt and he you know he gets a little loaded and has that that conversation with the guy about being from new york like it's just such a because it's daytime you know and it's he goes into this dark Bar and it's just such a a contrast with the image of sunny California, whatever you know. Again, it's it immediately kind of like throws off your expectations because we're introduced to the film in this sort of West Coast outdoor alfresco dining vibe, you know, and then immediately afterwards are kind of plunged into this seedy, seamy, completely dark, dank bar uh and I, again it feels like a sort of purposeful upending of expectations in that moment
1: anytime you see a man in this movie outside during daylight it just looks wrong because these are just
2: <laughs> not daytime <laughs> creatures uh and don't yeah. even really
1: look at, like la characters in, in yeah. many
0: ways i never think ben Gazzara looks like he shouldn't be doing anything but i get it yeah it, you know when he's wearing his uh Tucks or whatever in the middle of the day mm-hmm. and he's he's kind of filling up the car and of course you know at the end of the night it's also daytime i mean not, not, that's never a good feeling for anybody when you've gone through this terrible bender and you've lost all of this money and you're you're heading home i mean that's a tough feeling but yeah i mean you know just to quickly circle back to the last question i asked i think there must have been this impulse on cassavetti's part to resist the status that he just achieved for himself Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it's just like he's the type of guy who's gonna get a best director nomination and get a best actress nomination for Jenna Rollins and then just throw all of that away or you know just push as hard from that as possible because that's his that's his it's into the belly of the beast and that's really not where he wants to be and so he's made this movie that is so defiant of all the things that make a hollywood film a hollywood film and um i think it's the reason why one the film was pulled from release after a week and two you know ben gazar himself was reportedly pretty turned off by the longer version and three that it's got the cult reputation that it has because mm-hmm. this is the type of thing where it's like whoa this is a weird this is kind of an odd personal vision that's not like anything Cassavetes done has done, not like anything was really coming out of the time, even. It's just such a singular achievement in a way. But speaking of Gazara, I'm curious what you all thought of his performance as Cosmo.
1: I love how much he keeps to himself. His face is someone who's who's just has a lot of expressions, a lot of emotions rather that he's just not expressing in any, in any way. And just there's this fatalism about it as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's usually, I mean, it's kind of Gazzara's, default mode in some ways um, but uh, he's just so good at it and uh, he just fits it right into the fatalistic tone of the movie like one of my favorite lines isn't even his but it's uh, the bartender at the hamburger incident where, where the bartender says to him uh, and he's throw a throwaway line you can miss it if you don't if you're not listening because sometimes it always goes like that don't it and it, it's just it's yeah. like yep that's the movie right there it's, yeah so yeah and, and he embodies that I mean I don't know We'll get into this with uh, with Uncut Gems as well, but does, like, does he have a death wish, or is he just doesn't know any other way to? he just incapable of behaving any other way.
0: I, w- I mean, I would say the latter personally. But he kind
1: of accepts death. I mean, almost like the the yeah. Chinese bookie in a way, where he just kind of accepts death when
0: it comes. Yeah, to him. I want to get. I want to get into that. The ending is super important, but mm-hmm. I, but but I want to maybe stick with Gazara first. Sure.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tricky performance because Cosmo, like, he's sort of projects a certain confidence at, while at the same time it's very apparent that he is uncomfortable in the world. I think that kind of comes together in the the final line from Mr. Sophistication. You know, he says something about him being a, a man who who is always comfortable or something. And I think that's, that's supposed to be ironic. It feels like he's going through the motions of what he expects the person that he sees himself as, like what that person should do. But there's a disconnect, if that makes sense there. And I think that's where a lot of the character self-hatred comes through, is sort of in that feeling that he is not actually comfortable with who he is and the the persona he's crafted for himself. I think that is something that comes through almost completely in Gazzara's performance. I don't think it's really there in the dialogue really at all, except in that last line I mentioned
0: it's really funny because i think i had the opposite read oh yeah <laughs> yeah just that 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 he was comfortable that he is you know um fully full, like, full I... full so... himself that he accepts you know fate is is has been dealt to him as a result of making of being the person he is and making the decisions he's going to make you know it's just kind of like there's kind of a thing where it's just like well i've gotten myself in the situation and yep, well looks like i have to do this and well this i've been shot you know um and so
2: see yeah like and and i see it like well i've been shot and i don't know what else to do so i'm gonna keep being this person and doing this thing that i've crafted for myself you know and like i keep going back to the the corsages and Mm -hmm. him picking up his his three dates for that night and and you know bringing them all all their corsages and giving them the champagne and there's just like this performative aspect to to what he's doing and the way that he is sort of gathering these women around him in the same way and giving them champagne because champagne is what you would drink in this moment even though she doesn't really like champagne and like their discomfort and and like when they're at the club and just feeling completely superfluous you know Mm -hmm. and like bored really you know it just speaks to like he has assembled this you know facade around him and they are part of that So I think that's where I got that read on his character as someone who is kind of performing his way through life. And, you know, when there's a break in that performance, the only way he knows how to cope is to continue that performance.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to to give that some thought. I mean, one thought I had, too. Do
2: you think he's like a suave character, Scott? Well, I, I thought he was pretty pathetic, so the, so, that, uh, so that it would be interesting. Yeah, if I mean I kind of. was your read. I think there's
1: a kind of wounded nobility
0: to him. Yeah, uh, I, uh, yeah. Wounded
2: I, is maybe better than pathetic. But yeah, it's, no. I mean, I,
0: because I, I don't think he. I fundamentally think he's kind of self assured and knows who he is. I don't know. I mean, and I don't, I don't think anyone good, who's uh, self
2: assured would gamble away his his business. No, but twice. I, mean, that's, I think that's
0: <laughs> such a, that's a romantic thing, though, right? I mean, that's such a yeah. romantic a character that you would romanticize in a movie would be the type who just has a rascally nature and and who who has this self destructive side. I mean, who likes who likes perfect people, right? He's like he's kind of a lovable screw up in that respect. That he's gonna be the he's gonna be the guy who pays off this debt for seven years and he's gonna throw himself right back in the hole. But you know, and there's something kind of you know, I don't know, yeah, you know, well I guess what wounded hero or something. I there's something romantic in in a way about that type of a hero. And also maybe I just bring my you know, baggage in terms of my understanding of his as a performer generally, as being, you know, I mean, I guess people would would have seen him from things like The Big Lebowski or or Roadhouse or something like that. I mean, he's completely in charge in those films. But what struck me about this performance is I think that the m- entire movie is built around it. That's the thing about Cassavetes. Like, he's an actor. His actors are extremely important, get a tremendous amount of latitude in his films. And I think that the tone of this movie and the pace of this movie... And everything about it is really turning on Ben Gazzara in the same way that Women on the Influence and Gloria turn on Jenna Rollins and what she can bring to the table, right? So it completely affects the movie that he's making, the performance uh, and the performer. So let's talk about that ending. My favorite line of the film is one uh, where uh, his girlfriend slash employee, her name is Rachel. Rachel's mom tells Cosmo, quote, you think you're going to live with a bullet in you. The ending suggests that he's going to die, but what's fascinating about the movie is that he carries on as if he hasn't been gut shot. <laughs> what does that tell you?
1: I think it's, a, it's the same impulse that drives him to call the club after his uh, car has a blowout. I mean, he's just, this is what he does. You know, this is who he is and what he does. And, you know, I don't I, I don't even know if it's self-confidence or if it's if it's sort of a sad performativeness Um I mean, if we get, you know, I don't know if Scott's right or Genevieve's right. I'm not sure the movie gives us enough information, but it does just, we do not spend enough time with him to know what this person's going to do in this situation that's going to carry on. And, and I don't know though, you know, I, I don't know if his big speech before the ending is sort of a, um, you know, self eulogy in some ways, does he know he's going to die at that point or is it just, or is a recognition hit him outside the club? You can read it either way, but I, I definitely feel like all all he can do in this situation is to carry on with his art and his club.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's the only thing he knows how to do, and I think it, again is a an example of this film sort of reveling in not even defying expectations but sort of throwing your expectations back at you like why why do we want to see him die or why do we want to see him live you know because those are sort of the storytelling elements that we are used to seeing and that we expect to see because we we need that closure and the film doesn't really give us that closure and doesn't really even give us enough information to you know hazard a guess. You know it doesn't even uh, li- like he said give us enough information to really know what Cosmo is thinking in that moment. It feels very of a piece of what this movie is up to as a quote unquote gangster movie, as a movie about a, a quote unquote strip club. Like it's ostensibly those things, but it is not that those things. And I think his. Maybe, maybe not. Death is just another piece of that.
0: Yeah, I guess my theory is that he understands that he's not going to live and that it motivates his behavior, motivates that speech that he gives backstage. And then I feel like he's using this opportunity to claim a little bit of dignity for himself and to express mm-hmm. something that he feels is important to the people that he cares about, right?
2: Dignity is, a, is I think is a key word for uh, right there, right there in terms of just the care, the, like unlocking the, the character. is like, he's someone who wants to project dignity and, you know, like he goes out on the stage and, you know, is very like, this is my show. I choreographed it all. I produced it all, you know, like he, he takes ownership of it and, Again, I think that's just like important for the image he's cultivated of himself and he holds on to it until the, the very last moment, yeah. including the speech that he gives his performers.
0: But I guess maybe there's also something, an element of denial in that line, too. You think you're going to live with a bullet in you, that, that you're just, it suggests um, invincibility and that perhaps there is an element of him denying the inevitable to the very last. I don't really choose to see it that way, but that line kind of suggests it a little bit to me um but you know this is the movie about suggestion this is not a movie about you know we have completely different takes you and i genevieve about who this guy is and i think the film invites gives you evidence in both of those directions and gives you evidence in at the end perhaps in both directions whether he lives or not whether that's even important and um you know just generally it's a film to be lived in and to be navigated however you you know it requires an act a level of activity on the part of the Viewer that I think, you know, is challenging but kind of makes it special.
1: Before we move on, let's see if I can blow Genevieve's mind the way I tried to yeah, blow your Yeah, oh mind my gosh, this that. is great. So, Genevieve, can you tell me the one degree of separation between this movie and The Shining? I think our, our listeners <sighs> will be interested in this as well.
2: I, I, don't, I don't know. So, I'm terrible at guessing games. Just
1: tell me. A- Aziz Johari who plays Rachel is uh-huh. also the woman in the poster above Scatman Crothers in Scatman Crothers' bedroom <laughs> – In The Shining, (laughs) apparently it was a fairly famous pinup poster that she did.
2: Oh, well, uh, how could I have not remembered that?
0: <laughs> you don't know your playmates of the month for whatever in the I mean, mid seventies. One, one with a huge afro. Yeah, that's...
2: she's gorgeous. Like every time she's on, she was on screen, I was just mm-hmm. captivated by her face. So
0: yeah, I mean that's, that's just sort of. Mm-hmm. I mean, y- you can only be so anti erotic when people are that. Pretty. That's that's true. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, enough. Of that. <laughs> I'll end. I'll end with that, um, <laughs> and we'll move on to feedback. now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film after marriage story dropped on netflix social media was filled with memes and really bad hot takes but our listeners had more thoughtful responses as usual genevieve do you want to read one of them
2: Sure, listener Matt wrote a great letter about the legal aspects of marriage story, but it was really long and we had to cut a section about the compromise Charlie and Nicole attempt to strike deep into the process. We wanted to focus on Matt's thoughts about Charlie as a client and the lawyer's. To wit, Matt writes, I write in regards to your marriage story discussion, specifically the topics of how the legal and lawyer aspect of the divorce is presented. Before going further, I guess I should declare my bias by identifying as a practicing lawyer, although not in the family divorce practice area, a field you probably couldn't pay me enough to do. No, the probably. I I heard the probably there. (laughs) Beyond standing up for lawyers in general, what struck me about the movie is how a lot of the worst events are caused by Charlie being a difficult client and or Alan Alda's bad client management. He begins the movie from a selfish stance of wanting everyone to stay in New York, even though the steamrolls over what Nicole wants and the life his son is now comfortable with in L.A. Alan Alda eventually helps get to a compromise of splitting custody between the coast, but Charlie rejects this before it is finalized in the courtroom, hires Ray Liotta to turn it into an expensive and emotionally draining legal knife fight, and then has to settle the same compromise. I've dealt with plenty of clients where I had to explain that there was no magical better deal or outcome, no matter how emotionally invested they were in being declared the winner of a Pyrrhic victory. Ideally, Alan Alda would have been able to explain the necessity to accept the logical compromise to Charlie and resolve things fast and cheaper, but then we understandably wouldn't have the rest of the great movie. This has been long enough that I'm fine with this not being addressed, but we're going to address it anyway, Matt. Uh, He also (laughs) says he wants to stand up for Laura Dern's lawyer as being a good, aggressive lawyer, especially compared to the rabid dog that is Ray Liotta. While Dern plays hardball in court and presses during negotiations and preparations, I never got the sense of her being underhanded or scummy. I also can say that in my experience, if the opposing side is on the precipice of defaulting due to inattention, you normally wouldn't personally call them to warn them, and instead would gleefully wait until the second their deadline passed to jump on their error and win. I think the subtext of the courtesy call might be Nicole pressing her attorney to give Charlie a fighting chance, but even so, the truly mean lawyer would ignore their client and deny mercy. We also see this in what she demands, focusing almost solely on the important issue of custody and agreeing not to go after Charlie's grant money until it becomes a necessity. This is contrasted with Leota, who sees stalking private eyes around every corner and assumes the worst about everyone. The compromise between crazy and reasonable line is a good one, but it's also notable that he is positing Nicole's understandable desire to raise her son near the rest of her family in LA as crazy. He clearly sees the proceedings as a zero-sum game where everything the other side has is a loss, which leads him to recommend pursuing the most maximally aggressive strategy that in the end accomplishes what they had already agreed to more amicably. In these two lawyer representations, you get the sense that Dern views the other side as an opponent to be contested but ultimately respected, while Leota sees opposing sides as an enemy who can never be trusted and should only be beaten.
0: I love it. This yeah. letter, this letter is it's longer and it's and uh, and gets into a lot of really good stuff too. Um, yeah, we got we got two really good long letters about Mary's story. That was an excerpt. It was still pretty long, but um, mm-hmm. I like it. I liked getting that lawyer's perspective, and it really fits well. I think. With the text of the film, in terms of what the state of the agreement was and how it changed and didn't change between when Charlie switches from Alan Alda to Ray Liotta, and you know what a good divorce attorney would do versus a maybe not so good divorce attorney love it
1: yeah watching this movie again this weekend charlie's role in his own uh difficulties was <laughs> made much more clear on a second viewing uh he really does get in his own way and you know the fact that they did get there with alan alda's character who who may not have been the most together lawyer in some ways um but still they did kind of carve out a compromise that that would work but uh yeah he just blow, to blow it all up to hire, hire leota's character is uh well in keeping with the character i guess
2: Yeah, I'm sorry Tasha's not here to answer this, because I know she was the one who was the most dubious of the lawyer characters uh, in in this movie. Um, I was not on that episode, but I have watched Marriage Story since then, and I'm uh, excited that I get to talk about it, even though I think my opinion is, is not what Tasha's would be. Because I kind of had a reading similar to this of the lawyers when I watched it, specifically of Dern being competitive, but not necessarily evil or malicious in the way that Leota's character is... Is presented, and I I, th- I think the one kind of sticking point to that interpretation is the the scene at the end where mm-hmm. uh you know she she talks about like an extra what two days or so, or something like that it, like, it's some like a very, like fifty five
0: forty five split or something like that right
2: right right yeah yeah it, 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 a matter of like two percentage points or, or, or something you know very a very minor. You know, addition to to their victory, um, that that comes across as really petty and maybe kind of not in keeping with that character as she's been presented prior to that point in the movie. However, I think what you know, if I'm going to argue with myself, I, I, I would say that Leota's character brought that out in in her. Like he egged on her competitive mm-hmm. side to that point. Um, whereas Alden Alan Alda's uh, character, if he had if he had stuck around and been the lawyer, I don't think she necessarily would have done that
0: the film does such a great job too in emphasizing that the stakes are not high for them <laughs> this is their job yeah you know i yeah. mean and so you get you get you know a scene where ray Liotta shows up to court and laura dern says oh brother oh no this is not great but then you know, they they walk up and have a, con- they have a cordial they chummy conversation, yeah. or you know, you get the scene in the conference room between Dern and Alan, Alan Alda, and there's a lot of fighting back and forth. But then they stop and they order, you know, a, from a sandwich place, and like, you know, so it's just it's not as meaningful to them, but at the same time somebody like Laura Dern is it suggested is fighting a much larger battle both for herself as a lawyer and for women in general and winning is important to her beyond what she's doing for Nicole and so it's an important character moment for Nicole to be able to be repulsed a little bit by that sort of cutthroat move at the end but it's understandable that Laura Dern in the grand scheme of things would want to assert herself that way.
1: It was an important moment for me on second viewing uh, realizing that that they were ordering from a restaurant called Manny's and not Mayonnaise, which was how I heard it the first time I saw this film. (laughs) It's a terrible name for a restaurant.
0: Uh, What if you don't like mayonnaise? Yeah, no, right. And I thought thought, like, wow, I love mayonnaise. It's like, God, don't you want something else around the...
2: (laughs) Well, I I think they're, um, not to drag this out even further, but that sandwich ordering scene, I think there's also another sort of important bit about Charlie's character and how he relates to his lawyers in that scene, which is that he can't figure out what he wants to order, at least not quickly. He's not decisive. you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Nicole has to step in and, and tell him what he wants. And in the same way, I think Charlie would bring that sort of indecisiveness to any sort of custody battle, whether with lawyers or without. And perhaps Nicole you know, is attuned to this sort of innate wishy-washiness of his, of his character, and that is part of her motivation of taking this outside the realm of the two of their dynamic and bringing in an outside third party who can kind of help corral this energy of Charlie's and the fact that the Alan Alda lawyer doesn't really work like he's not a strong enough presence to direct Charlie in the way that he needs someone to direct him because he doesn't know he thinks he knows what he wants but he doesn't really understand how to get it
0: we're not done with marriage tour yet there's, there's one more really good letter here you know a lot of the discourse around the film has been about whether the film sides with charlie or nicole and if that creates a harmful imbalance in the drama keith we have a letter that picks up on that
1: We do Uh, Dylan writes your episode on marriage story briefly touched on the hot topic of the movie taking sides all agreed that the film had great empathy for both characters but the middle section foregrounds Charlie's victimization while Nicole temporarily fades away. It's not solely a matter of screen time. It's also about our access to their motivations to use Tasha's phrasing. We spend little time exploring quote why Nicole keeps moving the goalposts and much time experiencing the effect this has on Charlie. Rather than thinking in terms of sides, I think Baumbach's aim is to place us in Charlie's perspective, for the middle section at least, a minor but meaningful distinction. The Nicole that Charlie finds in Los Angeles is a cipher to him, with new hair, fresh aspirations, and mysterious motivations. Charlie has a far better understanding of how his marriage failed, something he personally experienced, than he does this strange woman who emerged from the wreckage. Similarly, the audience is privy to a scene between Johansson and Jern, which eloquently articulates the story of the marriage and why she's had to leave, but doesn't fully explain her future actions. Thus, the result is that the audience's perspective matches Charlie's. We have deep empathy for Nicole, but we can't quite understand all her behavior i.e. why she keeps moving the goalposts. I've heard some commenters claim that we lose sight of Nicole's motivations during this stretch simply because the movie focuses all of its attention on Charlie's suffering, but I don't think that's quite right. Rather, I think the intentional introduction of this ambiguity is the goal. Perhaps the most terrifying part of divorce is confronting the fact that you don't understand your partner as well as you thought you did. Certainly the story could be told by an omniscient narrator, but grounding us in the imperfect perspective of the characters involved makes it far more emotionally potent. If we perfectly understood both characters at every point in the movie, could it truly reflect the bewildering experience of divorce?
0: Yeah, I think that's another great letter, especially this last graph that line here where Dylan writes, um, you know, perhaps the most terrifying part of divorce is confronting the fact that you don't understand your partner as well as you thought you did. That really unlocks the film in a big way, I think, for me, in the sense that like you get to that understanding at the end. It's hard to come to that understanding of really being able to understand why a divorce is necessary and be able to understand who the person is on the other side. And I think the movie in a way is certainly from Charlie's slash Bombbox perspective, but it is kind of trying to process that. Am I off on this uh
2: no i and i like what kind of the delineation dylan notes between you know having empathy for nicole but not quite understanding all of her behavior and and getting that through charlie's perspective that said again speaking to my own experience of the film i felt like i understood nicole better than anyone like i'm not gonna get into the team whoever Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) conversation But the scene that you guys all called out in that episode between her and Laura Dern, where she gives her version of the marriage and her understanding of their relationship and why it needs to end, that monologue was just so clarifying. And I felt I understood everything I needed to understand Mm -hmm. about that relationship and that character's motivations in that moment that it carried me through the movie. So... The section of the movie that kind of moves to Charlie's perspective, I was still kind of always carrying that understanding of Nicole and her motivations into that. So I think maybe I processed Charlie's actions as more about his like, growth or, or, like, coming to meet her, uh, y- you know, or kind of rising to her level. <laughs> I, I guess mm-hmm. I I'm much more sympathetic to Nicole in this movie while still, you know, having sympathy for Charlie and respect for the way that the film kind of plays in that ambiguity. But I think – And it's, I think it's just going to be a personal thing. And that's why this sort of semi annoying conversation about, you know, who's right has popped up because the pieces of that relationship that speak to you is going to differ a lot from person to person. Mm -hmm. And again, for me, that monologue of hers was just like, that did it. It's like, okay, I, yeah, yeah, she's right. I, she needs an advocate. She's got an advocate. She should have a lawyer, you know? And if that's what sets off this whole chain of events, then good for her. It had to be done.
0: Yeah, so. I mean that was the part of. I guess that would be also the part of Dylan's letter that I wouldn't agree with because I do feel like I know motivations are really well put in the sense that she gets. A, she does get that monologue, and you. It, mm-hmm. But the critical thing is that her lawyer hears it, right? And so, you know, it's not she's not saying that to Charlie. I mean, I'm sure she said it in a lot of different ways to him throughout their marriage, but we're we're not witness to that. And so there is a... And
2: and he would never listen to her the way that Laura Dern listens to her a good moment. Like, oh my gosh, like her listening face. I just like want to print it out and like put it above my computer so I can look at it every day. Laura Laura Dern? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Laura Dern's encouraging listening face looking at me. Yeah, no, it's...
0: um, (laughs) But there's maybe a difference between you know you start with that perspective and the journey of the film is a lot of fight on charlie's part to comprehend what she's doing you know to be angry at what she's doing and to finally get to the point where he can accept it and maybe see things a little bit differently i mean the denouement of the movie is so critical i think to kind of how you're supposed to feel at the end of it i mean i think you feel at the end like this is right You know Mm -hmm. that she was right to want this for herself that it was it was certainly good for her it's probably good for him this marriage had to end and that you can get to a point where you can see each other again. Um, with affection and you can work together to raise a child and uh, you know it's a good it's a good feeling
1: yeah I think A.O. Scott described it as a film in which it's largely a story about him coming to understand his wife's point of view and, and and I think that makes sense but it's also I think another another way to put it would be he's a storyteller he's a creator of stories and this is a story that's gotten away from him and he cannot mm-hmm. bring everything back in line with the narrative he's created which is they are a New York family he says we are a New York family well they're they're not anymore you know yeah. uh, and it kind of, kind of you know fans out from there, it's like the you know if you can't get that detailed and nail
0: down the story, doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Oh, you like the film? Did you, Genevieve? Do you like a Oh yeah, story?
2: yeah, loved it. So, so good, loved it. I put this on Twitter, but uh, watched it with my fiance and we we both loved it. It was a it was a great experience. My mom also watched it with us, uh, or she watched the first half hour and then stated that she uh, could tell the lawyers were going to ruin everything, and then fell asleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> so so, <laughs> so that's her review. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, We'll watch another high-stakes gambler circle the drain in Uncut Gems. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com picture nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com picture nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, Do the environmentally conscious thing and request those burgers without wrappers. Just have them put it straight in the bag.